The following program is paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees. This is KQEN Local Talk at 4. Every weekday, News Radio 1240 KQEN brings you local information at 4 o'clock. Now, True Wealth, presented by Little John Financial Services. Here are David Little John and Katie Shook with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back, I say, because I know it's been at least a week that you all have been waiting for the True Wealth Show. Uh, I am your host, David Little John. Katie will not be joining me in studio, but. Tagging in today, uh, our favorite attorney in heart, Mr. Derek Simmons. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, well, you know what? It's it's always a good time when liability management is in studio with me. That that does seem like a more efficient way to do things. The most efficient way to do things. <laughs> the most efficient. I keep way. thinking the show needs to do some on-site shows and say Hawaii, and take me along. Right. We just like we'll. Uh, you know, we're just going to do a remote. You know, it's a true wealth moment. I think we could probably swing that. I think it's deductible. I'm just saying. Well, you know, uh, I, I, you heard it from our, was that formal tax advice? I, I would I, not give formal tax advice. No, I would never do that. You know, it's a funny thing about this program. Here's, uh, uh, we oftentimes tap dance around this stuff. In fact, we flirted with this at lunch a little bit about, uh, because Derek and I had lunch today. That's how we got the invite to the show is that uh, I tend to say things that you, you don't fully commit to them on air. You know, it's like they're, they're accurate, but they leave enough wiggle room to say, well, I didn't tell you to do it. I just said that's kind of how it works. You, you know, the question is, why do we always do that? And why do you get some other folks on air that will say things like, cut up all of your credit cards and do these exact things? Well... Uh, depending on the advice that you're giving, some things carry some liability. If you hold yourself out as an expert in something and someone relies on specific advice that you give them and then they blame you for it, it's possible that somebody could say, yeah, Dave was responsible for that person doing the stupid thing. Some things, of course, are not particularly stupid. There is very little risk involved in cutting up your credit cards. Right. You can't use them anymore, but that was kind of the point. Exactly. So this is there's a couple other things I'm going to point out, though. So if you listen to this station with any regularity, then you've probably heard of the the Dave Ramsey program at one time or another. Dave Ramsey's famous as the get out of debt guy. Right. And he's the never have a credit card ever. Don't touch them. They're the, the worst thing ever guy. Like you don't need a credit score. You should just pay cash for everything. Okay. And that's the the Dave Ramsey methodology. Why can he get away with that? He also does something, by the way, this kind of nerfs me a little bit because he'll say, well, you know, I think you should invest in mutual funds and you should buy growth, growth and income, aggressive growth and international funds. Why can he say that? Do tell. Why is it that he can say that? Well, there's two reasons. One of them is because he's not an investment advisor. Illegally, he's not licensed to do that stuff. He's not selling investment advice or or charging for an investment advice to a group of clients or anything like that. Uh, and and the other, and this is the really more interesting one, is because those mutual funds don't really exist, right? A, there is no. It's a category. It'd be like saying 
Go buy a car. Yeah, also, I think it'd be safe to say buy low and sell high. Right. You can give advice that's so generic that it's not something you can follow. When you say you should go buy growth or growth and income mutual funds. Okay, there's no growth and income magic category. There are mutual funds that have the objective of both investment growth and income, but an objective is very vague. They may do it through buying all kinds of different instruments. Is it stocks? Is it bonds? Is it preferreds? Is it derivatives? It could be anything. And then there's the manager's action. Sometimes they may buy one that they see as a growth opportunity, and then suddenly it produces a bunch of income, and then it's not like they're going to sell it just because it's doing something different than what, if it's in good shape, they're going to keep it. Right. So this is the equivalent of saying, I think you should buy a home and reliable transportation. Sounds reasonable. Okay, those are reasonable. What does that mean? Well, is it an apartment? Is it a house? Is it a condo? Is it a boat and a slip somewhere in a marina? I I don't know. But it's you need a place to stay, and you need to be able to get to the places you have to go. Okay, well, thank you for that no-brainer advice. But when you couch it as, well, buy growth, growth and income, aggressive growth and international, okay, those are categorical types of mutual funds. It's a clever and vague way of saying, Go get a diversified portfolio that invests both domestically and abroad. And really the thing that I think Dave Ramsey has um, captured is when people get serious about eliminating debt, then a lot of things go right. And that's the thing that I think he pushes on the most. I would say it's even simpler than that. When people get disciplined with their finances, good things happen. That's even better. Period. Because the... I remind folks that most of the people that come to Dave Ramsey and they're really true evangelists, many of them, I, w- I would argue percentage-wise, probably the more than the majority, like the vast majority, had problems with credit earlier. Like, like reckless spending led them into a hole, and then through the process that Dave Ramsey preaches, they got out of the hole because he showed them a path to daylight. And so they're, they really become evangelists for that path. And you know why? It it works. Like, it actually works. But it's not because the process in and of itself is magic. In fact, Dave will tell you that his process isn't the most efficient. It's the one that you're the most likely to follow because many people have demonstrated that if they don't have success soon enough, they'll quit. So it's discipline. It, it, allows, discipline. You, it allows you to develop discipline because right. it's the easiest path to follow. I would, and I would suggest that this is one of the bigger challenges in our education around money within our system. And I say system like our education system, but everywhere around us, what's not natively taught. Some people figure this out. Some people, it's tr- their parents train them. And then some people, it's through touching the hot stove enough times they don't want to do it anymore. Right? So pain. <laughs> but it's the idea of discipline in, in, in simple principles. Uh, I don't know why this is hard, but for some people, the idea of spending less than you earn is this novel concept. Like, well, what are you talking about? It's like, yeah, you don't spend money you don't have. But I have a credit card, so no, no, you have access to somebody else's money. It's not yours. You'd still have to pay it's it back. Still, still not magic. It's just a debt. Yeah, and, and so this is, if anything, this is probably one of those philosophical areas where government drives folks a little, it drives me a little crazy when it's like, well, we can, because we can print money, 
then it doesn't matter. We can just buy whatever we want. And that's not exactly how it happens, but because you don't have to live within a finite budget, they don't. And this, by the way, this is a nonpartisan comment. Everybody's guilty of this one at the federal level. Like like Congress, they go in the naughty corner for the it, last how many decades now? It is always easier to vote in favor of spending than against spending. Right. Because somebody can come up with an example. Here's somebody who would benefit from this program, um, and this person totally deserves it, and therefore we should spend a bunch of money on it. But you can't do that. There are 35 good things to do with every dollar. Yeah. There's just no doubt. And at the federal level, there's way more than 35. I've got 35 of my own. Yeah. Well, my, my favorite is that everything becomes an investment, but we, then we just sort of move the definition of investment. You know, I always think of investment as, well, look, if I put money into something, more should come back than what I put in. And I don't know that it really works that way. Not at, no, not in federal spending. What we're doing is we are investing money that then our children will have to pay back or our grandchildren. Right. And so that's, uh, you know, that's just, it's the challenge of the day. I, I don't have a, a solution for it right now. Uh, I mean, the solution is austerity and pain. You know, nobody's interested in that, right? Nobody wants to modify their benefits. They want it to be somebody else's problem forever, right? It's the NIMBY concept. Everybody listening, you know what I'm talking about, right? NIMBY? Not in my backyard. Yes, nailed it. See, uh, it can happen to somebody else, but I don't want it to be me, right? And that's and that that's, is the problem. That's not an unreasonable way to approach the world. It is an un unreasonable way to expect the world to be governed Correct. In a good way. Yeah. And, and that's, or I've said this on the program before too, there's two kinds of ways to make decisions. Uh, it's a kind of a tough example, but uh, you know, there's decisions that lieutenants make and decisions that generals make, right? Generals send troops into battle knowing there will be casualties. Lieutenants send their buddies into battle, right? Much more personal. And so it's a lot harder there because one of them is like, well, here's the overall mission profile. And we have to do what's for the greater good. Well, that's pretty impersonal when it's the greater good. It's also why we so often get down to the individual stories and the people because it personalizes when you're trying to communicate to somebody. Well, I knew a person. This was their name. This is their circumstance. This is why we're compassionate and why we do these things. And you're striking pretty close to home, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> because because my oldest son is about to go to the Air Force Academy. Yeah. And then he will be a lieutenant. Yeah. And so now suddenly military things mean a lot more to me directly than they have Correct. historically. Correct. And so uh, I don't actually use it lightly. The illustration is not at all intended to poke fun. It's intended to be a little bit jarring for folks to recognize the decision making is not the same. And some people in their arguing with others, they're coming from two different perspectives. And it's so I, I often ask, well, are you, are you the lieutenant in this one or the general in this one? And it's a, you know, and then it facilitates this conversation. But it, it is it is very real. I mean, uh, the, the good news is, uh, you, you know, your, your son is likely to be a very valuable asset in the military. This is my code for saying he's a darn smart young man. And so if, if I had to place the future of our country on somebody's shoulders, I would say, well, there's the kind of guy I'm looking for. So 
Uh, don't tell him I said that, okay? <laughs> I won't. <laughs> okay. This is just between us. Yeah, good call. Good call. So uh, anyway, uh, let's, let's talk about a couple of things here today that are interesting. Uh, we have some things going on in the economy that are unique, right? I don't, I, <laughs> Unprecedented. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've noticed or, or not. Uh, and th- it's, it's unavoidable that there are certain things that we get to discuss, but probably not the way you think. I mean, like, I'm not going to talk about the specifics of social unrest. I'm going to say that we know it's out there. I'm not going to talk about the specifics of the virus. We know it's out there. What I want to talk about is some of the specifics of how is our government responding and what might it mean for investors. But they do make us take breaks on this show, so we will do that first. And then when we come back, I'm going to quiz you, Derek. This will be fun. On the Federal Reserve, and did you know that they are giving away money? I know. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is David Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240. Thank you again. This is KQEN Local Talk at 4 on News Radio 1240. KQEN. Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. I am your host, David Littlejohn. And joining me in studio today, the smarter, more talented, and better looking attorney, Derek Simmons. Oh, thank you. I thought we were going to talk about my wife for a second there. Uh, but she's not here. That's true. That's the even she's more not, talented, yeah. even better looking. <laughs> <laughs> so. Hey, uh, at the break, we were just getting into some of the interesting things to me about how the economy is being managed at a government level, not around shutdowns or other stuff, but around how does this affect the investor? And if you're just joining us, I'm going to remind you that this will all be available on podcast, right? So tomorrow you can check out, go to littlejohnfs.com. We'll get it posted and it's under the educate tab on our webpage. Uh, you can theoretically find it at the radio stations page too, but why would I send you there when you could go to our webpage? You mean littlejohnfs.com? That's the one. Yes, okay. that's what I was thinking of. Uh, I'm channeling Katie there. <laughs> good, good job. Anyhow, so you can get caught up, but Derek, I, I brought up the funky point, and this has really come about in some of uh, our professional circles. I know there was a conversation around this and some interesting questions, but I talk about, you know, the Federal Reserve to a certain extent is giving away or printing money right now in one form or fashion. Congress has as well. And the question is, what does that mean for investors and what does that do economically to our currency? And I'm curious if just sort of your your thoughts initially. Well, the off the cuff thing is um, the markets themselves are just completely screwed up. There is no way to tell what's going on from from a lay perspective. You may have, I'm hoping you have better ideas on that. But what it looks to me like is there's um, the, the markets went down when the world shut down, but then they came back really quickly in part because there's no place else to put money. Oh, you can't man, put it overseas. That's a clever observation. You can't put it in bonds because that's horrible. And so then you've, it's either your mattress or the stock market, yeah. and the stock market's marginally better than the mattress. So, boy, did you... That was brilliant, by the way. Well, thank you. And I, I want to just explore a couple of those concepts for 
uh, our listeners. One of them being that it seems like nothing <laughs> nothing matters as far as the economics go. Like the numbers and the data seem to not matter. I agree with you, right? I think that the valuations in the stock market right now are almost a novelty. And the question is why? Okay. And so I'll just posit for a moment that when the Remember, it was it was the government, and it was state by state, but largely every state in the country for a little while, uh, almost every state, said, okay, we're going to pump the brakes, and we're just going to shut stuff down, shelter in place, you, and, and we're going to stop social gathering, okay? And I, I, let me be real clear. I'm not taking a position on whether they got it right or wrong today. That's not the point of this show. I mean, that's a really polarizing concept right now to a lot of people. That's the true health show. It's yeah, that's one. the true yeah. health, not true wealth. Right. Nailed it. So it's not about whether or not the call was right, wrong, or otherwise. Let's just say it was what it was. When you pump the brakes like that, and in this case, I'm going to say a lot of businesses just sort of lost traction altogether. Think about driving on an icy road. You pump the brakes, but you lose traction, and all of a sudden you're sort of drifting, right? Right. Now, as long as there's not a major corner in front of you and you're drifting in the same direction, if you don't panic, you can almost sort of regather your traction and get back on track again, right? Sure. Now, you should, if you're reasonable about the way you're doing this, you don't typically stomp on the gas because that's not a good way to get traction. You back everything off and you slow down for a minute and you let everything get caught back up, and then at some point... The coefficient of friction, nerd stuff, reaches a point where it will regrip on a slippery surface because it's not as slippery as the coefficient of friction, and then uh, it will you'll move forward. I think we need to find a way to work the coefficient of friction into every week's show. Wow, make that a, make that a mission. <laughs> okay, somebody's gonna look it up later and go like, you know, that's not actually what it's called. And I'm gonna go like <laughs> facepalm. Great. The point is that you break things loose, but if you get it recovered and back on track. You lose a little ground in the process. But what happened is a lot of companies, even when everything broke loose, investors looked at them and said, nah, it's probably going to be fine. Right? You know, Amazon had some hiccups early on with just the distribution chain. You know, Amazon Prime became Amazon eventually <laughs> when you ordered stuff. So two days, maybe two days of processing, plus however long it takes us to get it to you. But everything got sort of out of whack. But they still kept delivering, and they were sort of the only game, or one of the primaries. So Amazon stock has essentially recovered to near all-time highs again. I mean, it has gone on to all-time highs. I don't know if it finished today at all-time highs, but it's kick and tail. Right. And then you look at oil companies. And, for example, Chesapeake Oil is potentially going bankrupt, which I find fascinating because if Chesapeake is what I recall— a lot of what Chesapeake does is also moves oil and gas. So they own pipelines and so forth. So I don't know what happens when you have a oil company with the infrastructure go under. Well, what happens is that the creditors then sell off the pieces and somebody else operates. I'm them. talking about more theory. Right, mechanically, sorry. I know what happens sorry. there. Yeah, see, he is an attorney, right? Uh, but what I'm saying is where does the where do those assets get acquired and, and where does the value of that infrastructure go and how are investors going to sort of capture that value? Because there is intrinsic value in the ability to move product, right? So I digress. Here we have 
some companies that aren't going to survive, some companies that will. And we don't have any idea what earnings are going to be yet, right? Stopped giving guidance. So investors right now had to just look at Amazon and go, nah, it's a good enough idea that I think we'll be fine. But what do you do with companies that are coming to report earnings and they give you no idea where they're going to be? Well, you consider whether you've got better options. <laughs> yeah, that's literally what you do. And so investors do what I like to call making it up. <laughs> so this make stuff up. Uh, it, it, there's lots of stories behind why investments can be good stories. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to discuss individual positions on the show today. That's not the idea. Yeah, that was my advice. Yeah, yeah, good job. But I can suggest that the stories are what people are more interested in in the short term until we start getting some guidance and seeing how the economy actually comes back on track. Because right now, what folks probably don't recognize is I think unemployment's at 13.3%, and I think the highest it got during the 2008 Great Recession was about 10.6, 10.7%. So we now have more people unemployed than when we had the financial crisis of 08 when you know, real estate values were cut in half. But we've got and, these extrinsic factors that are causing, that are contributing to well, it, if not causing it. It's true. It's not economically driven. It's almost, it's not that it's self-induced, but our response is self-induced, right? It was a very aggressive response to essentially lock the brakes up on our economy and now we're trying to recover and you know again we were sort of skidding in a direction and you, the recovery appears to be that we many companies may get back on track and start heading down the path again okay so the data doesn't matter for a little while until it does again which i think happens this is a total guess just let me clarify total guess Next quarter is, you know, we, we took a quarter off. Everybody gets a holiday. But next quarter, the markets are going to say, you know, we've recovered most of our value here. We got to make sure that as investors, that value is justified. So I think earnings will be very interesting come our next earnings season, which remember in Q3, so third quarter, is a reflection of earnings from the second quarter. Right? The prior quarter's earnings get reported starting in the third quarter. And then we start to get guidance as well. So then the data can be back in favor. We hope. Well, we hope, but I, I don't have any expectation otherwise. If, if not, we really are making stuff up, right? Uh, and, and there's another key to this one. Uh, so how, how nerdy do you think our audience can handle today? Mm, you know, not, not very deep. On the Dave scale, which goes to like to 10,000. Yeah, I, I think probably the the audience can go to about five hundred. Wow! So if mine goes to eleven, you're saying keep it at like a two. That's what I'm saying. Okay, oh, so if, if you put me to sleep, I will tell you. Did you bring the pillow as discussed? <laughs> All right, look. So we're gonna have some nerd talk. If you guys are listening and you've ever wondered about, we're gonna talk a little bit about valuation. Now, this is a scary word, I realize, but how does a stock get priced? And pricing models, oh yeah, if you're falling asleep, just wait, because <laughs> I want to tell you why the Fed printing money affects the price of stocks, but I'm going to connect it with math that you may even understand. It's not nerd math, it's actually like, hey, I could use this in a cocktail conversation and people will, you'll, they'll think you're an investor. All right, so we'll do that. I'm going to reveal some secret sauce 
of investment analysis, but we are going to take another break. All right, so stick around for the nerdy stuff. We will be right back, and I'll let Derek talk more, too, because, you know, that's the not nerdy stuff. All right, cool with that? I'm cool. All right, gang, stick around. We'll be right back. This is David Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240. Thank you, This is KQEN Local Talk at 4 on News Radio 1240. KQEN. Hey, gang, welcome back to The True Wealth Show. I am your host, Dave Littlejohn, and in the studio today, it's not Katie. I know a bunch of you are like, what? She'll be back, I promise. Okay. But I do have a sub today. So, Mr. Derek Simmons, thank you as always for joining me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Again, a reminder, you have the podcast if you're just catching up to us and we're covering all kinds of goodies here. We're having a conversation today. We are talking about the stock market. I wanted to talk about basketball, but then you reminded me there was no NCAA I say, what basketball? No, look, I'm just going to make a declarative statement, okay? Kansas won the 2020 NCAA tournament. Carolina was a very close... Second, they clearly were going to be allowed to play into the tournament through a series of completely realistic events. They would have won the AC tournament, gotten an automatic automatic bid, and then played all the way to Kansas, and injuries probably would have cost them the game, but it would have been close. Well, I agree with half of that. <laughs> the Carolina would have made it, and Kansas uh, would have That's the been part out. I'm going to have a hard time. <laughs> Kansas made it's like... 38th consecutive tournament or something like that would have made its 38th consecutive yeah. tournament. And Carolina, Carolina may not have. May not have. And that is, this is a hard one for me because I don't track a whole lot of sports anymore. And I really don't track Carolina basketball a ton until tournament time, at which point uh, I just reserve the right to be a total bandwagon fan in every way, shape, and form, except for the fact that I will root for them regardless of they're good or not. This year, the honesty factor is simply, eh, I just, they just didn't have the horses this year. But no, no, the Jayhawks aside, you were talking about something else entirely. Yeah. Well, the stock market is fascinating to me because of what we, you, you kind of implied this earlier. It's the idea that we've had all this government intervention in our behaviors in terms of setting rules about whether or not you can go back to work or not and so forth. And then we had two giant but dissimilar policies, both trying to accomplish similar things. Okay, On one hand, we had Congress that showed up and said, we need to get stimulus money in the pockets of consumers. right? And they did, and it was lightning speed. They did it. And, and to this one, I will say, Credit where due, whether the policy was good, bad, or otherwise, history will tell. But for the most part, that money was in hands quickly. Now, they also increased the amount of unemployment benefit for a lot of folks. This was shield, but for many people that were sort of into forced layoff land because their employers were shut down. Like, you know, if you were at a restaurant, they just said, no restaurants right now. So forced unemployment. And then there was additional money applied to unemployment. So some people for a season, it worked out okay. 
if you could get the unemployment paid to you. There are still some people in the system that haven't actually gotten paid the unemployment that was due to them. And then there are some people, this is what I was saying about government intervention, um, making it really hard to tell what's causing what. Because now there are people who could get their jobs back, but would rather stay home because they're making more on unemployment. Right. And I've talked on this program before. There's a name for this, right? It's called a pernicious incentive. Okay. It's when you create an incentive for behavior that is not the behavior you want. That also would be a great name for a band. Yes, it would. Pernicious incentive. That would be an excellent name for a band. Uh, note to self, if I had musical talent that <laughs> and, and personal bandwidth with which to explore it, that would be great. Uh, so I'll, maybe that can be your band. But it, it is a pernicious incentive that keeps people from doing the thing that the economy would like it them to do. Right. And and by and large, we may even say, like, I can't blame anybody. If Look, if you are getting paid more to not work than to work, I get why you're not working. I just disagree with the sort of the moral position that it was right to create that structure in the first place. Right. So you should be incentivized to work as contributing (laughs) as a lieutenant you might be saying hey take the money and as a general you're going people should not take the money correct that's that's 100 percent correct that's a great example by the way thank you credit there um so anyhow as i think about now the scenario though that was the congressional side of the equation right direct deposits to people now Congress also authorized the two different programs, right? There was the PPP loan, the Payment Protection Program, and this was intended for small businesses. And in Payroll, yes. Payroll Protection Program. That's, is that what I said? Payment. Payment. Which, yeah, which is very close, but it's payroll, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Freudian slip there. Because the businesses were essentially given grants in most cases uh, that, that uh, if, if they follow certain rules, the, it was a loan. But if they follow certain rules, much of the loan can be forgiven, so they won't have to pay it back. Now, there are other tax considerations. We're not going to explore that on today's show. Nevertheless, it was a form of direct stimulus to small business. It's, there's never been anything like it. No, it is unprecedented, literally. So we've got, and this is for businesses with under 500 employees, for so 500 or fewer. Yeah, which is like all but about 12 in... The state of Oregon. Yeah. I mean, the super mega corporates, I suppose, didn't get it. But almost everybody else was eligible. Now, that, again, was direct dumping of money into the economy. Some of it went into the hands of everybody. And then some of it went into the hands of businesses that were controlled by smaller groups. And then you have what the Fed is doing. And this is different. And here's here's why I think we care about this. I've had a number of people that have said, like, should I go buy gold? Are we about to have a whole bunch of inflation? Right. That is a good question. Uh, it's a great when, question. When money gets dumped into the into the economy, one would expect that prices are going to necessarily increase because we've essentially devalued the money that's out there. Right. Right. So we have to think about a, a number of things at play here. In theory, yeah, we should see inflation. And in some areas of the market, we have noted this. For example, the gold market this year. Gold is historically an inflation hedge, and it's up pretty handily, I think, somewhere like 27% for the year. 
that's pretty significant increase in the price of gold. Well, it's an increase in the price of gold, and it's a hedge, but that doesn't answer the question of whether we're actually going to have inflation. Absolutely. And see, you're, you're getting to where I'm headed with this one is everybody got some money after everybody was put out of work. So the whole flow of money in the economy got pretty wrecked, right? Now the folks that have received some money are back and they're spending it and so forth. And that should be stimulative in effect. The problem is that the cost, you know, inflation isn't just driven by a simple amount of like, well, they're printing money. It's money that's available and in circulation and what it has to be spent on. I've discussed this before. So here's the question. Derek, do you believe it costs more today to live than it did, say, 20 years ago? Inflation adjusted. Inflation adjusted. I would still say yes. Yeah. I, I make this case as well, but it's for different reasons. Is it because if you adjust for inflation, in theory, it should be about a push, shouldn't it? Well, it should be, shouldn't it? It yeah. should. And yet there are things that are now culturally required that 20 years ago were optional. Example. Cell phone? Correct. Computer, internet? Internet. Connectivity is not optional, despite what we say. And could you do it without? Sure, you can be a wacky hermit. Hey, but it doesn't work well. It's a huge penalty. In fact, it's one of the reasons people say, hey, we need to preserve our library system. I would say, well, why do we need that if all the information is available and accessible online now? Well, part of the reason is because for the lower income population that doesn't have access to a computer, that's one of their places that they can have an access point because it's pretty important today. Well, yeah, but would that be would that hole be filled by uh, community access to the Internet as opposed to a library? Well, which we see, think of as a book repository. Yeah, and, and that is I mean, that is the question. I think you kind of secretly again hit on this. You're you're really good at this. today. <laughs> you know, the, the community repository for books is less valuable. I realize that when you say, oh, can you say books aren't valuable? I'm God, no, that. I love the library. Yeah, I spent so much of my childhood summers in the library. Yeah, and, and it's magic. I'm, I'm not at all trying to trash the library. But the question, the question, the question we're trying is, to is community access the, the higher priority as a resource? Is it the is it that there's books in a building or is it that we need a building that can be for the community benefit that has access to information and resources? That's a it's kind of a library, but maybe it doesn't maybe it's not a book repository in the traditional sense or not at the same size and scale that we've historically had. And it will be a long time. Uh, oh, before yeah. before the community's love for a library as a as a repository of books lets it not be that correct It'll be a very long time correct. before I would be willing to accept anything well else. I'm not uh, let me be really clear I'm supportive of the library so don't don't misconstrue my thought process no not here. at all I'm just but for but our that, listeners for, as a thought experiment we're thinking hey would the hole be filled by a, a series of computers that folks could access the internet with, and the answer is maybe, maybe, and and it at least maybe, and maybe it could be something else. You know, maybe you can have libraries, but they're not necessarily in every single town. They need to be close enough to be accessible. But maybe you can have computer labs or other things that would be beneficial to the community. I, and again, thought experiment. But enough of those weeds. My 
greater point is that inflation has other components to it, including supply and demand, right? So if you have an increase in currency in circulation, that's likely to trigger inflation. But see, a lot of people have looked at what's been printed and you know, I say, well, a lot of the money that was printed by uh, this latest round of stimulus was to make up for the gap of all of the earnings that were suspended. So I don't know if it put a ton more earnings and the people that disproportionately benefited from it, are they likely to go spend disproportionately more? Or are they going to still retain that currency? And then, you know, where do the pockets of inflation show up? That's okay. an excellent question. So here's the other side of the equation that's the really weird one and the one I want us all to think about. Okay. The Federal Reserve, did, did they print money? Did the federal? Yeah, I think yeah. they did. They did print money. Now, here's the question. Will it lead to inflation? But we can't answer that now. No, we can't answer that because we have to take an absurd profit. <sighs> yeah, exactly. So uh, we're going to do that. Let us uh, grab a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to tell you, I think the Federal Reserve was clever. And I'll tell you why when we get back. This is David Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240. Take This is KQEN Local Talk at 4 on News Radio 1240. KQEN. Is that fair? Can I talk about that on the radio? I think you can. Just... <laughs> I'm like, tell Derek, I miss carbs. It's been now, I think, two or maybe three weeks. I think it's been a full two weeks. It's got to be more than that. It's been whatever it's it's long enough that i miss carbs and i'm like i would like the carbs you they get just, to it you get used to it and then when you do you still want the carbs just so you know great because i'm like you know what would be awesome is cheetos right about four pounds of cheetos <laughs> so i just need a bag that's about the size of a pillowcase and i'm just going to strap it on like a feedback no let's just <laughs> we'll stop <laughs> all right okay. so back to back to the show here I wanted to share one last concept with people because I'm getting this question a lot of, do do I believe, somebody asked me today, do I think that this uh, central banks are trying to move us toward a global currency? No, I don't. I actually don't think. Now, do I think that all of this money printing will devalue the dollar? I actually think they want it to, but it hasn't because all of the other major countries are also devaluing their currency. So, you know, so relative to each other, they're staying. Right. The same. It's, it's kind of like, well, all the bathtubs are getting water poured into them. So the, you know, at the same rate that the drains let it out. So it's just great. It's sort of the water level stays the same, uh, or at least the water levels all rise at the same pace. If that makes more sense. Cause uh, really the, you know, the folks that get hosed on a deal where you start printing money, are the folks that made the loans. So it's it's bondholders that get hosed. Right. Because if you loan somebody else money and they can pay you back with money that's less valuable than they borrowed it from you. They win. Yeah, they win. So if the 
government starts printing money, hey, look, they win. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Is the Federal Reserve printing money? Sort of. It feels like it is. But is it money that gets into the economy and changes and, and triggers inflation? Yeah, this is the part where you lost me when we talked about this before. Yeah. So walk me through it. So maybe not, because here's the way the Fed is putting money in the economy. Uh, if the government wants to, the government finances its operations, right? Taxes pay for things, but the government d borrows money all the time, and then it makes payments on the obligations in the form of treasuries and bonds, right? right? So you go get a government bond. That's you loaning the government money and the government agreeing to pay you your interest back. These are considered extremely safe. So the highest credit ratings in the world used to be government securities, but for the most part, still considered the safe risk-free return. And this does make sense. Even though the government does a lot of goofy things that a lot of folks don't like, they do have a printing press. So I'm pretty sure they can print the money to give back to you. Whether or not it has the same purchasing power is debatable, but they have the ability to do that. So the government issues bonds all the time. So the Treasury Department issues new bonds. The Federal Reserve prints money and buys the bond. Pretty sneaky. That, Pretty feels, sneaky. Like, that feels like the government is loaning itself money. The government is totally loaning itself money. So the government makes the payments back to the Federal Reserve, and then at some point, the bond matures and the government pays the Federal Reserve back, and they just take the money out of circulation. So it doesn't ever get into people's hands. What it does is it funds the government. So what does it accomplish? Well, he, this, is, this is the really key question. This is what quantitative easing is. It changes the demand side of the supply and demand curve. If the government's printing bonds and nobody else will buy them, what happens? If a bond is unattractive, the price begins to drop and the equivalent yield goes up. This does it sounds fancy, but it's not. Remember, the government issues a bond and it's a fixed value. It's like, hey, a thousand dollars. You give me a thousand dollars, I'll pay you interest on it. And they say, Great, I'm not gonna give you a thousand bucks to make two percent interest. And they go, Well, what if you can buy it for five hundred dollars? Now that two percent interest looks more like four. Because it's the same payment as if you'd put $1,000 in, but you paid half price for it to get the same income stream. So it's twice the income stream at half the price. Okay. You following me? I'm, I'm following you halfway, but I'm still not figuring out why we had to go through all the rigmarole of why creating the, Fed, the bonds right? and then buying them from ourselves. Because if nobody else will buy the bonds, the price falls and the relative interest rate spikes. It goes up. And so if you need to keep interest rates low to fuel economic activity, you become the source for demand for the bond. So if the Fed buys everything, then the demand is really high, which means the private sector has to pay up to get it. If you want government bonds, you got to be willing to pay for it because the Fed will beat you to them and they'll outbid you. So they bid the price up on their own. That's what quantitative easing is. It's just the stabilizing of the bond market by providing a bid or someone willing to buy the bonds at the price that's being asked. You know, I I, I grasp at the I grasp at the straws that you're giving me 
and they're sailing just above my head. Well, if I was to try to think of it as, remember, there's only two things that determine price, supply and demand, right? So don't you don't have to talk about your pricing on the air, but you know, like if you had no clients, Derek, you your hourly fee is going to drop until be lower. you get, you know, but if you're just totally your schedule is fully packed, you can start increasing your price. Then I should, yes. Right? Because you are in demand. Okay? Well, if you were a bond and nobody wanted to buy you, you'd have to lower your price. Okay, but let's carry this one step further and this is where I get lost. I can't say, "Hey, I don't have any clients, so I'm going to pay myself." Ah, see, that's my hourly the racket. Rate and fill up my own calendar. That doesn't work. This is where the central banks irritate a lot of people. They're not a government institution. And so the central bank controls the printing press, not the government. But it's like, it's you know, like government appoints, but it's, this, it's an independent entity of bankers, right? So the central bank just says, okay, well, we'll just put more money in circulation. It's like maybe my landlord renting a bunch of my time so that then... My calendar is more full and I have money to pay rent. Yeah, it's it's really know. hard to get a natural example for this one. It's just that the Fed has a printing press and weird autonomy in this case. So they can print the money and they can buy the treasuries to, to increase the demand for them. Because well, all they're really doing is they're just gobbling up the supply of everything that's printed so that the private sector has to pay more to get it. It keeps the interest rates low. I like that word gobbling. That makes good sense. But yeah. it, it's just right above my head. Yeah. Well, here's think of it in terms of corporate bonds now. Okay. Because this is where they're starting to rescue everybody is the corporate bonds. They're going to do the same thing. They're going to buy bonds that are otherwise unattractive to investors because of the risk associated. But if the Fed buys them all, then the price stays high. Okay, that makes more sense because now it's not buying from itself. Yes, so that's the next thing. They're not supposed to do that. But it so the treasury bonds work like corporate bonds. If you if you buy them, it's supply and demand. It keeps even though the demand is artificial, it bolsters the price and forces interest rates lower, which makes the cost of capital lower for everyone else in the economy to borrow. Lowers the cost of mortgages, lowers the cost of business loans. So that's stimulative in effect because they're forcing interest rates down. Even though they're not changing the interest rates any other way, they're they're the buyer. Yeah, there are other policy reasons to be uh, careful about that. Like you don't want the government to end up taking ownership of a bunch of businesses uh, because they defaulted on their bonds. Whoa, 100%. 100%. And so I think that's where this cooperation and the danger comes from, though, is that when you start buying the bonds, you know, you're in a position of capital protection in a sense because if the company goes bankrupt the bondholder gets paid before the stockholder now in truth i think it's more appropriate at least on the surface i haven't thought this through really deeply but probably more appropriate for the fed to buy the bond than the stock because if they are going to go into bankruptcy then the fed gets paid back whatever it can and that's the natural order of being the, the the buyer right but if you buy the stock and it fails and then the bondholder doesn't get paid back because Right now we're messing up with the which legal is structure. why the Fed never buys stock. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, bottom line is that if the Fed's manipulating this, that means that the money doesn't have a lot of other places to go when the interest rates are super low and bond prices are high. You can do the math from there. Look, we're out of time, so we got to run. Uh, until next time, Derek. Thanks as always. Um, and yeah, end of the music. So this is David Littlejohn. You've been listening to the True Wealth Show. We'll catch you next time. The preceding program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.